Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones, Chapter 4. I take a break from this necessary but awful research and walk along that same lake where Ryan and Jack used to walk in more civilized times. It's early evening and the water is an unnatural shade of steel gray, calm and ominous. Novice jogger with flabby legs and bad technique, a couple whispering to each other on a rock. A family gathered around a woman in a wheelchair, some respite from whatever she is being cared for at the hospital across the street. There's enough wind blowing to keep those gaggles of flies from gathering, but not enough to make me cold as I stride with some purpose. Not that I really do have anything to do or anywhere to go, but I always feel awkward when I'm seen to be strolling alone, when I'm obviously not accompanied by anyone, no friends, no girlfriend, no family visiting me, and so appear to be doing this for exercise or for lack of other useful activity to be devoting to myself to. Honey, let's go to the lake. It'll kill some time. Years of work as a student, bachelor, master, and finally doctor, and then even more years teaching, and really a lifetime of critical and attentive reading of everything I've set my eyes to since about grade nine. All that time and experience combined with an innate inclination for facts over feelings. All that has made me particularly sensitive and adverse to sentimentality of any kind. So as I walk through the darkening night, I have to fight back feelings of self-pity and anger, waves of self-righteous rage at the shoddy treatment I received at TU. I feel like a child, no better than poor little Jack, while I debate with the maker about whose existence I have long been agnostic on the topic of my current lot. Why am I not basking in tenure and intensifying my knowledge of my literary specialties instead of writing a sad little book on a sad little topic? I received a long, rambling email from Jeremy, a former fellow student, recently, quite unexpectedly, as I hadn't heard from him in about ten years, in which he professed to have converted to both Christianity and veganism, and counseled me that I should embrace whatever happenstance falls from God's firmament into my arms, and not treat digressions as anything other than planned gifts. I have no patience for claptrap about an ordered universe created by anyone, but on my better days I have to concede the practical humanist truth of Jeremy's reminder. No situation is absolutely better than all others, and so there are in fact many advantages to my current situation. No more petty academic politics, no more questions from earnest first-year students about the what the message is of this or that core literary work of Western civilization. No more even thinner slices of subject matter for articles in peer-reviewed journals, searching for that take on Alexander Pope that hasn't been written about a thousand times, that tidbit of fact that would revolutionize the way his oeuvre is seen forever after. The murder research avoids all that, As Jeremy put it one night after a drunken, boisterous walk around the commons, all that bullshit, le mot juste. It's dark by the time I reach the end of the path, which takes me aback tonight, as it often does. The only choices are even deeper darkness in three directions, or retreat. 
I stand there and look out over the expanse of the water, lights flickering here and there, but generally nothing and nobody. There's a near total silence for about half a minute as the traffic relents and the water decides to be calm. I find it hard to imagine that a killer could be hunting in this city, that such a pinpoint of perfection could be sullied by the downing of fellow humans. A car horn sounds, and for a moment I forget where I am, here, now, but headed home. I turn back and head head home, and as usual the retracing of my steps is slightly depressing. The reason is that it is much darker out now, nearly pitch except for the occasional light, and the path is devoid of other people. It always feels to me as if I am revisiting a once beautiful vista that has now been despoiled. There was light and sounds when I was here on this very stretch an hour ago, in front of this bench, alongside these rocks, but now there is nothing. I feel like it's the end of the party, the scene of the crime, the cursed fate of all things beautiful. I'm overreacting, yes. I spent a fair portion of the afternoon reading romantic poetry. The Topper, an egregious word I heard while eavesdropping on Wellington Street on Saturday, is the arrival back in my room after wending through City Park and some nice streets just east of the student part of town. Absolute silence and solitude, my landlady, long since sunk into the last of the deep sleeps which old age forces on her several times a day. I have rituals that I generally follow at night, but I just don't have the heart for them now at, what, 11.42 p.m. I work on the book throughout the day, of course, but I've gotten religious about spending an hour on it before I go to bed, too. It is the logical penultimate activity, but I struggle with it tonight. Reading is the last thing I do. Nothing research-related, at least not directly, and none of that atrocious page-turner stuff that gets trumpeted in the newspapers. I turn down the sheets, adjust the ceiling fan to its second-highest speed, effective but relatively quiet, and settle in for what usually amounts to about an hour of reading. Half-reclined on two pillows, the red-shaped lamp providing just enough light the fan whooshing comfortably, I choose from the pile on the second shelf of my wicker nightstand a book that is part history of printing with movable type, part biography of Gutenberg. The title, perversely, is My Mains Man. Chapter 5 I go to the King's University Library for some serendipitous fun, scouring the shelves for nothing in particular at first, but then zeroing in on the HV6251 to HV7220.5 sections of the class books on the shelves. Crimes, book after book on the topic, as if Nosting had been preparing itself all these years for the assaults it has been undergoing. Librarians with foresight developing the collection, fortifying the city against attack. The place is quiet. I select a single title, slide it out from between the confines of its shelf mates, and confirm that I am all alone before I promptly sit down on the floor and start skimming through. It's perversely refreshing to be reading about crimes committed in other cities and in other times, far, far away and long ago 
as they say in the fairy tales. I like being distracted from the immediate threat. A throat clears while I am reading something about Gacy or Gein, and I look up to see a woman standing there. Sorry, I say, didn't mean to block your way. I begin to struggle to my feet. Please don't move, she says, and then pauses and adds. Fascinating, isn't it? What? These books here, these murders, men at their worst, and some women too, all doing all that horrible stuff. It's disorienting, down here on the floor, the book closing itself up and falling down between my knees, while this beautiful creature talks on, her voice lilting up and down, but mysteriously steady too. I look up, stare for a solid five seconds, and she just smiles back goofily surveys the shelves and seems to take a book out at random and then plops down cross-legged on the floor with me this one she says brandishing the book this was the first one i ever read in here i remember feeling that i had to sneak around sat at one of the tables but felt too obvious and then ended up in one of the more isolated cubicles but kept the covers flattened plastered to the desktop and my head close to the pages just in case anyone with with a curiosity walked by. Funny to think of that now. Now I come here, lounge in some of the softer chairs, and read about... She looks around, pantomiming fear. Read about Moida, just as brash as you can imagine. She has that thrown-together style that looks disheveled on some people who aren't as beautiful as she is. When she laughs as she is doing now for some reason. Her whole body shakes, a level of commitment to the moment that I am unable to achieve myself occasionally, but not without considerable effort. It seems natural to her. She sits down beside me, and we remain like that for a few minutes, she showing me a passage from her book, and I, now encouraged, showing her some from mine. I feel like a student who has accidentally discovered the perfect study mate. Why does this kind of thing interest you, I ask. She shakes her head slightly at the question, whether because it is banal or brash, I am not sure. You see a body walking around here, walking around anywhere, she says. But actually, no, you don't see a body. You see a person being conveyed in a vessel that actually doesn't attract any attention until it's been violated. I mean, we're so socialized, so civilized, that the only time we realize that we're made of meat is when the flesh has been cut or pierced and blood has flowed and then everything changes. She looks over at me, then up at the shelves. I feel like we are both either trapped between collapsing walls or adrift somewhere. It's impossible to get off, but we're doomed if we stay put. What do you do, I ask? What do you mean? I mean, what do you do in your life that makes you so interested in this this topic? I work as a waitress at that new Cambodian place, the one down on Queen. The hours are a little erratic. I think they're afraid that I'm going to turn out to be incompetent or something. Erratic as in I don't get many, and so I have the time to hang out, hang out here and pursue my, what do you call it, my topic. She laughs. I wonder, and then my voice drifts off somewhere between the stacks and the look on her face, and I have no idea what I wanted to say or what I could possibly say to a creature like this. My name is Tony, by the way. I'm Andrew. 
I smile in spite of myself and am happy that we are down to these simplicities and that, in effect, we are starting over. Hi, she says and smiles and then bows her head to her book again. I realize quickly that my efforts at concentration on my work are now doomed. I am, I am able to keep myself from simply staring at her, but as I read text about murder and flip through page after page of photographic detail, all I can think about is who this person is. I fake it for 15 minutes and then shift my legs and clear my throat of nothing and stand up. She smiles again and then extends her left hand, and at first I am not quite sure what is going on. Help me up. I do, and when we are both at eye level, standing less than a few centimeters apart, I can smell her. Not perfume, but a combination of sweat and powder and something vaguely metallic. She dusts herself off as if she has been just thrown, up, thrown by the big prize bull at the, at the rodeo. All that talk of murder has made me hungry, she says. Care to join me for some Indian? I stare at her again, and I am a little embarrassed at my propensities, as Johnson put it. A half hour later, we are sitting across from each other at the awkwardly named Indian Anna, the owners are from Bloomington, setting out our preferences and hoping for edible overlaps. The place is over-decorated with white tablecloths on peachy pink ones, solid wooden chairs, the walls festooned with exotic people in exotic costumes. I look up when she says Vindaloo and see her still pouring down the columns of the menu as if it were an ancient text. She looks up. I have some other ideas, she says. I don't mind if you order the whole meal. Oh, I like a man who can be obedient, she laughs. I'd suggest papadum, dal, pakoras, lamb vindaloo, sag paneer, naan, raita, and a couple of kingfisher. How can I say no, I ask, honestly and rhetorically. The beers arrive and the waiter pours them quickly into the glasses without tilting them, forming about three quarters head and a quarter drinkable fluid. Tony looks over at me with raised eyebrows as the second one is being poured, and she chuckles when the waiter leaves our table. Oh well, she says, raising her glass and clinking it against mine. Cheers. There are about ten or fifteen other customers in the restaurant, and the space is small, so I feel I have to keep my voice down when I ask her about murder. So what are your thoughts on the killing that is going on in town? I ask. She answers quickly, as if this is what she has been thinking about all day. You know, thoughts. I don't really have any thoughts about it. I have this weird obsession, though, something I can't shake no matter how hard I try. Like here, for example, here in this restaurant, I think I see killers all around me. It's, so, it's sort of like that thing where you stare at a word for long enough. After a while, it doesn't make any sense. You know, look and sounds... Like, it's not even a word. I look at these people here and I see... She lowers her voice and bends over the table towards me. Like that woman in the corner there by herself. I imagine her as being some psycho loner freak who's just here scouting for new victims. Or that couple there. I imagine that guy is our killer and he's licking his chops as much over his date 
the poor doomed woman, as he is over the food. It's crazy, I know, but I can't get these things out of my head. That's odd, I say, sincerely. And it's not just here. Like I say, it's everywhere. When I'm in the grocery store, when I'm walking on the street, wherever, whenever, it's always the same. I know it's illogical. I know it doesn't make any sense, but I can't help myself. I keep thinking that all I can see is killers. It may be some kind of normal overreaction, I speculate, drawing upon some fund of gibberish I likely osmosed from the head of the psychology department at TU. It may be common to overextend your fear to objects which do not, in fact, deserve it. You start from living in an environment in which there are no killers, and then you know there is at least one killer. You assume there are thousands of them. Just a theory. Do you know that line from Shakespeare about imagining every bush to be a bear? It's something like that, I suppose. She smiles and shakes her head. Well, I don't know that bit of Shakespeare, but I think I know what you're getting at. In my lucid moments, such as they are, I do know that I am crazy to think this way, but I can't help being affected, feeling scared even, when I am being irrational. Sorry, I'm blabbering now and not making any sense. The waiter arrives with our soup just as I am shaking my head to reassure her that she is making sense, or that if she isn't, it's quite understandable. I wonder about her motivations as much as my own. The primal, primeval, primitive, primordial ones, even tip-tapping an alphabetical vowel playfulness like that, do not apply in my case. I have no interest in sexual congress, even the kind that is tempered with what the magazines, the cinema, even apparently real people like to call love. Wait, wait, wait. It is not bitterness or an aversion to having or causing a broken heart, and certainly it is nothing to, nothing misogynist or otherwise grandly negative. A matter of practicality, really. Being disconnected makes it easier to get one's work done. I also do not have any particular interest in smoking her out, an atrocious colloquialism I heard on television the other night from a seriously overreacted crime investigator. About the killings, I don't have any evidence to suspect her yet, and I am disinclined to fish around from the second of the back-to-back episodes must stop watching that box for any right now. As for her, well, I don't think she's a killer. There's a certain innocence about her that isn't compatible with a murderous streak, though, of course, murderous streaks are notoriously unpredictable. Whenever those magnificently coiffed reporters, women with elegant anvil jaw lines, men with overdeveloped trapezius muscles making their sport coats feel fit funny, Whenever they interview the distraught suburban neighbor of the man who has been keeping heads in his freezer for years, or has beaten his wife to death with a hammer for suggesting a divorce, or, well, the killer is always remembered as a quiet guy whose actions come as a complete surprise. Why is it that we never hear that he was always in trouble? So I don't actually know anything at all about Tony, of course, and it's just a feeling as prone to being inaccurate as any other a feeling I have that she couldn't kill anything. The soup is good. 
Our eyes meet across the table after the first simultaneous sip, and we nod at each other vigorously and raise our eyebrows as if we are approving something much more significant. I have to admit that there is a tinge of something in her eye that I just can't figure out, a glint like on a well-polished knife blade, a darkness like down the barrel of a gun, and it gives me a chill, even here with my face above the wafting warmth of the doll. I look down. This is only the second time I've been here, she says, and I look up while she mesmerizes me again. Yeah, second time. It was almost exactly a year ago now that Mitch and I were here. I don't know whatever happened to him, and her voice drifts away while I wait for any bit more information that she is willing to divulge. You broke up? No, no, nothing like that. We weren't like that. Just met up once and came here, and then he was gone. I consider for a moment that this might be some kind of bizarre, oblique confession, and I search my database of mind for keyword Mitch. Nothing. Oh, a date, I offer. Right. One night. You know, that kind of thing. That kind of thing. In fact, I don't really know. Not from personal experience, at any rate. We both finish our soups, Tony exactly one sip behind me, like the swimmer who misses touching by just a couple of hundredths of a second. The waiter has been monitoring from the bar at the back of the restaurant, and he is there at the side of our table immediately. The bowls go, nods are exchanged, and the dishes arrive in all their splendor within about a minute. The smells waft again, and we are both smiling broadly. I have a confession to make, she says, and I nearly guffaw a hunk of naan and lamb vindaloo. I look up. I'd noticed you in the library before, she continues right in there among all that murder stuff. I didn't quite stalk you or anything, but I thought that it was interesting that you were interested in the same stuff as I am. And so I kind of, well, waited around for you. She stops. This is kind of embarrassing. I laugh in spite of myself, in spite of my minutest worry about what I don't know, my own safety. I fake it a little, trying not to divulge being concerned or, frankly, flattered. That shouldn't be embarrassing at all. No problem. Thanks for telling me. And perhaps three or four similar reassurances which convey very little truthful information. I was a good poker player when I lived in Toronto. A group of us from the department played for dollar bets every Saturday night. And the skills necessary for that much underrated game served me well in real life human interactions in which a little dissembling is necessary for protection against revealing too much to an adversary whom I'm not sure I can trust yet. She smiles, looks down, then up, then down again to resume her eating. The non-fatal confession and perhaps my own transparent reply have had a dampening effect on the conversation. Her comments are confined to the food now and I do know better. She sneaks a look at her watch, and the whole business makes me sad and disappointed, seeing the efforts at whatever degree of genuine human contact reduced to a dueling restaurant review. Some of the dishes are excellent, some are middling, and some are horrid, and when we walk and when we are going our separate ways on the sidewalk outside the restaurant, I feel somewhat that everything has cancelled everything else out, the meal and the evening amounting to nothing. I'm surprised when she speaks up. 
We should do this again, she says, and the invitation doesn't seem perfunctory. That would be would be wonderful. She shakes my hand and then seems to position herself for landing a hug, but apparently thinks better of it and simply starts walking away, waving nervously and saying something that I can't quite catch. I consider for the briefest moment querying her on it, as if it might be a vital clue to something or other, but I change my mind, turn exactly 90 degrees, and head home. <laughs>